You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. If I uh, haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you've joined us this morning on Mother's Day. Once again, moms, uh, so thankful for y'all. Hope that you are honored today. Um, Sticking with the um, family kind of theme of this morning, let me ask you guys a uh, a ridiculous question, all right? Uh, What would it take for a family member of yours to convince you that he or she is God? Crazy, right? What would it take? Just let me, let me like push the envelope even a little further. What, what would it take for a family member to convince you that he or she is God to the point that you would actually worship them and submit your life serving them until you die? Not going to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love my family. I think they're awesome. My brother is a part of our church family. I think Ben is the greatest. He's, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, not going to worship him. I, don't, I mean, it's just not, not going to happen. And I know, I'll just speak for him, he feels the exact same way about me. It's just not going to happen, right? And, but here's the, here's, okay, this is why I asked this kind of just completely ridiculous question. It's because uh, today... As we wrap up this Risen series, uh, we're going to look at the life of one of Jesus' family members who came to a point where he actually believed that his brother was God. And the reason we're going to look at his story is because uh, his life just makes absolutely zero sense if Jesus didn't actually die and rise again. And so when it comes to the question, the big question that we've been asking throughout this series for the last three weeks and then, you know, bring it to a conclusion today, the big big question has been, okay, is there, there, you know, any reasonable reason for a rational person in 2019 to believe that Jesus actually died and rose again? Like, is there any rational reasoning behind believing that Jesus actually died and rose again when I think that we have to factor in James's story as we try to make a decision on that. Because his story is profound. It's, it's really wild. And so that's what we're going to look into today. And, and let me just tell you, like, um, this is super important to look into, right? I mean, we've been talking about this for the last uh, four weeks, but, or last three weeks and then today. But uh, it's so important because the question of did Jesus actually die and rise again, it's, it's, I can't over-exaggerate this. It's the most important question for Christians and for anyone exploring Christianity. It's the crucial question for our entire faith. Kind of the driving verses of this series, and you see them on the bumper video uh, each Sunday, but it's uh, the 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17. And there the, the Apostle Paul said this. He says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Meaning, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the entire Christian faith 
is a sham. Like the entire Christian faith is futile, meaning worthless, meaning pointless. And so it's extremely important for us to look into this and say, like, is there a good reason to believe Jesus actually died and rose again? And as I've said throughout this series, one of the things that I just love, I mean, I'm so comforted by, I'm so intrigued by, very attracted by, when it comes to the Christian faith, is that you can actually look into it. And you can look into the, the very essence of the faith, and you're invited to question, you're invited to explore, to investigate, to actually think about it on a, like evidence, like trying to get your hands around, like, is there a good reason to believe this? I love that. And the reason that we can do that is because the essence or the foundation of the Christian faith is not a set of moral teachings, and certainly Christianity involves some teachings, but that's not what the essence of the Christian faith is. And the essence of the Christian faith is not a subjective spiritual experience or feeling. Though many of us would say, yeah, that's been a part of my Christian faith, but that's not the essence of it. It's not something where you say, okay, I know this is true, whether how I feel about it or don't feel about it. No, the essence of the Christian faith, what it boils down to, what it sets on, the foundation of it is a historical event that either happened or didn't happen. And because that's true, that it's based on a historical event, we can explore, we can investigate, we can look into it, and we should. Which brings us back to James the, the half-brother of Jesus, because his story is profound. And it really does point to the credibility that Jesus died and rose again. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. So we're going to actually look into this, all right? I want you to explore with me this morning. And so here's where we're going to go. We're going to ask just a few questions. We're going to ask, okay, who was James? Get a little bit more biographical information on him. Then we're going to look into uh, what was his life and his relationship to Jesus like prior to Jesus' death? And then the next question we're going to ask is, what was his life like or relationship with Jesus like after Jesus' death? And what we're going to see, you know, spoiler alert, is that there's a big change, all right? And so we're going to ask, okay, what, what can explain that change? So that's where we're going this morning. So let's jump into the first question. Okay, who was this guy? Who, who was James? Now, before I, before I you know, talk more on that, let me give you a, just a, a little clarifying statement here. Um, if you were to go home uh, and read like, the gospel accounts, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might get confused about this, uh, about who James was, because there are a lot of Jameses in the Bible. It's a very popular name. So you're going to see James after James after James mentioned. There are three guys named James that get mentioned often, all right? The first two were part of Jesus' 12 disciples, so if you ever get in a trivia question, you get asked, okay, can you name some of Jesus' disciples? Just say James, and you get two of them right off the bat. That's helpful to know. There's, there's James, who's the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. And then there's another James, a J James that's the son of Alphaeus, and also the son of the other Mary. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about Mary and the other Mary. So that's, that's, those are two of the James. That's not who we're talking about today. All right. The James that we're talking about this morning is actually, as I mentioned earlier, the half-brother of Jesus. 
Now, I say half-brother because um, Jesus' biological mom was Mary. But Jesus, is, Jesus did not have a biological dad. He had an adoptive dad, in the sense, Joseph, who was in the home and took care of Jesus, but he wasn't his biological dad. Now, let me quick aside here. Um, I know that sounds like super weird, right? If you're not a Christian or you're here exploring the faith and you're like, okay, well, these guys are crazy. They think he rose from the dead. They think he was born of a virgin. I get it. I understand that that sounds really, really weird. Um, maybe not as weird as Jesus actually being man and God, because that's really crazy too, or the whole idea of what we're talking about here, that Jesus died and after a couple of days came back to life also Super weird. I just want you all to know, like, this is one of these things, the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus didn't have a biological dad, that whole idea. Uh, that's something that I just wouldn't believe, to be honest with you, if it wasn't for the resurrection. Because I believe that Jesus truly died and rose again. I think there's incredible evidence of that. Then that tells me, okay, if Jesus said he was, and we haven't even talked about this much during the series, but Jesus actually called the shot. He said multiple times to his disciples, I'm going to die, and after a couple days, I'm going to come back to life. On the third day, I will rise again. He, he said that, and then he did that. Like, he called this shot on the resurrection, and if he does that, then I'm convinced he's God. And if he is God, then he could be born of a virgin, because Nothing's impossible for God. So that's kind of how it works in my mind. And again, just brings back to why it's so important to ask the question, did he actually die and rise again? And so that brings us back to James. Okay, so James is Jesus' half-brother. Jesus, mother, Mary, biological mother, adoptive father, Joseph. James, actually biological parents, Mary and Joseph. So hence, half-brother. Now, what's interesting is that, I don't know if you know this, but but Jesus actually had a number of brothers and sisters. James was probably his, the, the second brother. So Jesus' oldest, then James, and then there's other brothers mentioned in Scripture, other sisters uh, referred to in Scripture. They all grew up with Mary and Joseph as their parents in, uh, in Nazareth, which was like a small little, small little town uh, and near uh, the Sea of Galilee. Joseph was a carpenter, probably just blue-collar family. And so it's interesting, you think, okay, what was it like for James to have Jesus as his brother? And we don't really know, right? I mean, I, I could see how that could lead to a little bit of a, like a younger brother complex. If Jesus is your bro older brother, like that, could, that would, could cause some difficult dynamics perhaps. But um, we don't really have much insight into Jesus' home life, family life, prior to when he starts his public ministry. And that's kind of where the, most of the gospel accounts of his life kind of pick up. But what's really interesting is that in the gospel accounts, you get a few insights into the dynamic, the relational dynamics between Jesus and his family, including his brother James. And none of them are even close to being positive. Like all of the peaks that we have into Jesus with his family during his public ministry are, are like rough. <laughs> They're not good. 
Let me just show you, okay? So when you think about just heading James, this is James prior to Jesus' death. Here's some of, the, some of the examples. There's really three primary ones. The first is this, found in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. If you have a Bible, you can go there, uh, follow along. I also have these words right up here. Now, before I read this, and I know you're already reading it, that's fine, but let me give you a little bit of context because up to this point in the book of Mark, Jesus has started his public ministry, he has left home. He's gone to the Sea of Galilee. He's called some people to follow him. He's now called his 12 disciples. He's actually uh, been teaching. He's performed a few miracles. And as a result, news is spreading about Jesus. And crowds are gathering around him. And their big question is, is this guy the Messiah? That's what they want to know. And so, and will this guy heal me? They, they also wanted to know that too. So you got those crowds gathering around Jesus. And Jesus here returns home. And we think probably for the first time since he started his public ministry. And here's what it says. It says, then he, talking about Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to, see that, that wild? Restrain him. Because they said, he's out of his mind. Now, can you picture this scene? Like Jesus shows up, everyone's like, oh, well, that's Jesus, Jesus, crowding. They're trying to eat. People are like flooding into the house, I guess. I don't know what that looks like. They're not even able to eat. And, and his family hears this. His brothers, sisters, James, hears this. And he's like, this is crazy. Y'all think that he might be the Messiah, you crazy crowd? This is our brother. And, and y'all, we're going to separate him from y'all. He needs some alone time. He's, he's out of his mind if y'all... That, is that not wild? It's, int it's interesting, isn't it? We get another look into uh, family relationship here, and uh, just a couple chapters later, Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, um, we're told uh, another time when, about another time when Jesus went back to his hometown, and he was not, uh, let's say, uh, not very warmly received. Here's, here's what it says. Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, pause real quick. The synagogue, think, think um, you know, that was where the uh, Jews in that town, which they were all Jews in that town, would gather on, uh, on the Sabbath, on that Saturday, to come and worship. And so most of this town was there. Not all the town was there. His family was there. And so he, at this point, decides, okay, I'm going to be the one who stands up and starts teaching. Look how they respond. They say, okay, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did these, where this man get these things, they said? And what is this wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? And then keep going. It says, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And so they were surprising, isn't it? They were offended by him. They weren't proud of him. They weren't, oh, that's our guy. He's our hometown hero. Yay, Jesus. Listen to how he, he's teaching and look at these miracles. Like, he's amazing. No, they were offended by him. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except, <laughs> except in, his, in his hometown, among his relatives, and even in his own household. This is their attitude towards Jesus. The whole, kind of here, the whole town, but as Jesus says, like this is actually not just people who don't know me, it's the whole town, but 
it's my relatives. This is true of even how I'm, uh, how people relate to me and my own family. Intriguing, isn't it? Okay, one more. I think this is the uh, most insightful when it comes to how James related to Jesus prior to Jesus' death. It's found in John chapter 7, verse 2 through 5. And uh, what I'm about to read, just to give you again some context, it takes place closer to the time when Jesus would be killed. In fact, the religious leaders were uh, already plotting to have Jesus killed at this time. And so Jesus has returned back from Judea to this region that he was from. And uh, he is, again, with his brothers. And in that, they have a conversation. Here's what they say. They say, uh, But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, they show yourself, then show yourself to the world. And then look at this, this statement. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now what's really interesting is that last statement actually informs us how we should have read the previous statements. Because that means that what they actually were saying was done in an incredibly sarcastic tone. Like they were mocking Jesus, which is why they say, hey, no one who wants to become a public figure, you know, it's like, you think you're a big shot, you think that you can do all these cool miracles, and why don't you go to your disciples who actually believe that, and show yourself, like, I mean, they're mocking him. His brothers, James, mocking Jesus, because they don't believe in him. Now, a couple of things I want to just point out from all this. The first is, and I think that this is, I think, I, I hope you would chew on this. I hope you actually process this. But the first is, like, one of the main reasons I have incredible confidence, personally, I have incredible confidence in the reliability, the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because they include stories like this. You think about that? Like, if these were made up, to try to make Jesus look like this some hero that he was not, to make him be like God, but he really wasn't, and there's, this is a myth. If that's the case, then why would they make his own family not believe in him? Why would they give us a picture that his own family was skeptical about him? They would not do that. They would make his family his biggest fans. That would help prop Jesus up in other people's eyes. But they don't. They include these stories. Why? The only reason, friends, the only reason they would include these stories is if these stories actually happened, that this is a historical, accurate account of what took place. And, it, and that's, like, that's powerful. Like, this is not propaganda. If this was propaganda, this would be the worst kind of propaganda. Oh, Jesus' family hated him, but he's God. Yes, like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, this is, this is reliable. I hope you process some of that. The second Thing I want to point out to you is um, just kind of in summary, James and by extension, his, you know, his, his whole family, um, they, they weren't Jesus' biggest fans. In fact, I've got right up here, this is, this is kind of just a summary here. They were, James, specific, not a follower of Jesus, skeptical of Jesus, offended by Jesus, did not believe in Jesus. That's how James, the brother of Jesus, related to his brother prior to Jesus' death. Now, what's interesting is 
what you would assume, given this information, is that when Jesus is crucified, what you would assume is that this pattern of behavior would continue or even escalate. What you would assume is if, Jesus, if James was offended by his brother, embarrassed by his brother, didn't honor his brother, didn't believe his brother, didn't follow his brother, that when Jesus is actually crucified on the cross for being, you know, what he was condemned for, was being a blasphemer for saying that he is God, that James would have further disassociated himself from his brother. He would have further removed himself from his brother, because that would have been, especially in those times, in, as, in, as a Jew, the most embarrassing thing ever. If your brother claimed that he was the Messiah, and he wasn't, claimed, claimed to be God, and he wasn't, I mean, that would be so, so embarrassing. So you wouldn't want to be associated to him, with him. But what's really, really intriguing, super curious, is the opposite happens. Like the exact opposite happens. When it comes to James after Jesus' death, here's the picture we're given. Oh, right after Jesus was, was crucified in Jerusalem, about a couple weeks later, we're told in the book of Acts, chapter 1, that Jesus' disciples gathered together in Jerusalem to pray. And we're given a list of who was there. Let me just read it for you. So those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and look at that, and with his brothers. Now you think, okay, hmm, see, that, that doesn't add up. Oh, why would his family, why would James in this case, and, but all of them, like, why would they at this point start associating with Jesus' followers when all along the way they've been completely hands-off? Get away from it. You're out of your mind. Like, after Jesus is crucified, I mean, the public outcry is the strongest, and they are like, you think distance, but no, here they are drawn in. That's weird, right? But it gets even more intriguing than that when it comes to James. Because uh, James... Uh, we're told within a couple of years after Jesus' crucifixion, like maybe a year, maybe some, definitely within two years, he's actually a key leader of the church, the first church, the church in Jerusalem. Now, you hear this, don't, don't hear just organization, church. Like he's a key leader in the movement of having people worship his brother. Right? His brother. I mean, it's crazy that he's the one who's saying that Jesus is Lord of all. And he is the way to reconciliation with God. He is God. And he's proclaiming that and leading people to worship Jesus. And we know this because the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, he talks a little bit about his backstory, Paul's backstory. And he says, hey, this is what happened after I came to, came to and I saw Jesus. Paul saw Jesus also risen. And he says, after I decided to follow Jesus, like there came a point where about three years in, I went back to Jerusalem and I met with Peter, key leader, key leader of the disciples, key leader of the church at the time. And I met with 
James. In fact, let me just read it for you. He, he says this in Galatians 1, 18, 19. Then after three years, which has probably been about 33 AD, I went up to Jerusalem and to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, do you, like, you feel that? Like, how wild is that? Now, not only is James following Jesus and associating with Jesus' followers, but he's, lead, he's a leader in the church. And if Paul is going to come and meet with anybody, it's, it's Peter and it's James, the brother of Jesus. Now, what in the world could explain that? But it's even more intriguing than that. <laughs> because um, what we, if you keep reading in the book of Acts, what you see in Acts 12 and Acts 15 and Acts 21, if you want to read that when you get home, but... In all of those chapters, 12, 15, and 21, you see James mentioned again and again. And it's key leaders that are actually coming, referring to him or coming to actually meet with him. To get counsel, to make big decisions for the church. Like he's the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he is, friends, all the way up to 62 AD. So for about 20 years after Jesus' death, he leads the church in Jerusalem, leading people to worship his brother. And we know that it's up to 62 AD because of extra-biblical sources, namely Josephus, who was not a Christian, not a, he, was, he was a Jewish scholar, historian. He, uh, in the first century, he records that in 62 AD, hear this, friends, hear this. He records that the reason James stopped leading the church in 62 AD is because that's when he was stoned to death because of his faith in his brother, Jesus. Let me just read it for you. Here it is. So he, Ananus, assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, that's referring to Jesus, whose name was James, according to the brother, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Like that's wild, isn't it? James, the half-brother of Jesus, prior to Jesus' death, offended by him, says he's out of his mind isn't a follower of him, doesn't believe in him. James, after Jesus' death, when you would expect that same pattern behavior you would, to continue or worsen, instead, a follower of Jesus, a worshiper of Jesus, a leader of the church leading people to worship Jesus, and killed because of Jesus. What could possibly explain that kind of life change? What do you think? I think the only reasonable explanation for this life change is that James saw Jesus alive after he had died. I mean, if you think about it, the, the only other, the, there, or I should say, there is not any other plausible explanation for this sudden change to happen in James's life. I want to hear this. When it happened and to the degree that it happened, and we know because of James right away meeting with the followers of Jesus and then leading the church of Jesus that it happened right at Jesus, his death. 
That's when this change took place for James. There is, friends, no other historically plausible reason for why this change took place, when it happened and to the degree that it happened, other than James actually saw his brother die, and then he saw him alive again. And not surprisingly, that's what we're told happened. You see, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, we're given this creed that many scholars believe dates back to within the first couple years of Christianity, a couple years after Jesus' death and claimed resurrection. And this, uh, this creed, Paul cites it in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 3. Here it is. Let me just read it. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep, and then there he is. He appeared to James. Now, can you imagine what that would have been like? <laughs> like Jesus seeks James out. What do you think James does? I mean, James, up to this point, it's like, I don't have anything to do with you. I've rejected you. I don't believe in you. I'm mocking you. And then there he is. I don't know how James responded in that exact moment, but we do see how he responded after that moment. But let me tell you, um, what I love about this is this also just is such a powerful picture into the character of Jesus. That he would seek his brother out who has rejected him time and time again. And one of the people that he says, I'm gonna, I want him to be an eyewitness of seeing me alive after I've died. I want my brother. I want James to see me. We talk about love talk about grace. Jesus would not write James off, even though James had written Jesus off. He comes after him. He shows himself to James. It changes James's life. Completely, dramatically changes his life. Do you know that um, James actually wrote a letter that's contained in the New Testament in the Bible? Do you know that? We actually have a letter from the brother of Jesus. That, that should be headline news more often. Like, that's amazing. Like, we have a letter written by Jesus' brother. And in that letter, here's how it begins. He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, this is how he identifies himself. He's not, hey, James, a servant of God and brothers with Jesus. We're bros. Like, we grew up together. I know him. I found him a big deal. I grew up with Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, no, this is who I am. I am a servant of God and, implication, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't like Jesus Christ, James Christ. No, Christ is a, is a, is a, a title, messianic title. Like he's the, the anointed one of God. That's who, he says, that's, that's who I am. Because that's who Jesus is. I'm a servant of his. <laughs> Later in the book, he'll say this. He says, uh, um, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Friends, <laughs> Let me go back to the original question I asked you this morning. What would it take 
to believe your brother is your glorious Lord and cause you to spend your life and ultimately give your life as his servant? What would it take? We know James's answer to that question. He would say, it would take seeing my brother die and then seeing him alive again. And that's what happened. And he would say, that changed my life. That I'm convinced that he, my brother, died for me. He died for my sins to make the way for me to be reconciled to God forever and have life in him, eternal life in him. He says, because of that, because now I know who Jesus is, I want everyone to know. And he gives his rest of his life worshiping Jesus, his brother, and leading others to know him and worship him. And then he gives his life for his brother, Jesus, his Lord, Jesus Christ. He dies for him. Friends, that's Powerful. Is that not so powerful? So I want to wrap up, all right? But I, I, before I do, I, I just want to draw out two things here that I would really, really encourage you to process this morning and hopefully throughout this week, if not beyond that. That in light of James's testimony, the testimony of his life, here are two things I think why are just so incredibly important for us to take away. And the first is this. See, this means there is nothing you can do that will cause Jesus to stop pursuing you. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, that's a good one, right? I mean, that's, that's powerful. Isn't that, I mean, think about it for, for James. James, his, Jesus, his brother, he rejects him. He mocks him. He's embarrassed by him. He's offended by him. He doesn't believe in him. He distances himself from him. I mean, this is James's attitude towards Jesus. What's Jesus's attitude towards James? He dies for him. He rises again, and he says, no, no. I want, I, want, I want James to see me. I'm going to go pursue James. I want James to know that I'm alive. But even more than that, Jesus is saying, I want James to know that I love him. I want to be in a relationship with him. I died so that we could be together forever. I'm alive to make that possible. This is Jesus' heart towards James, the one who wrote Jesus off and rejected Jesus. And friends, if that's Jesus' heart towards James, then it's just another example we find throughout the Scriptures that that's Jesus' heart, period. Not just towards James, but that's what Jesus is like. And what that means is if you have written Jesus off, if you have rejected Jesus, if you've mocked Jesus, if you refuse to acknowledge him, if you don't want to have anything to do with him, if you run your own, run your own way your whole life, and now you think, okay, maybe there's, there's a guy, but I'm sure that there's, he would have nothing to do with me. He wouldn't want anything to do with me. Hear this. James would argue to his blue in his face that that's not true. He absolutely, Jesus absolutely loves you, friends, each one of you. And he, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you have done or you ever will do that will cause him to stop pursuing you, that you can enter into a relationship with him through faith 
in his death and resurrection for you. That you could be reconciled to God through him. Nothing you can possibly do that would cause Jesus to say, okay, I'm done with you. No. He comes after you, come after you. He'll come after you out of love because he loves you. Gosh, that's so good. Don't you love that that's what Jesus is like? Friends, I want to encourage you, if you've been here through this series and you've been wrestling with this, is this true? Did Jesus really rise again? I really want to encourage you to believe, just to be real upfront and just say, like, this is Jesus, like, the incredible reason to believe that Jesus died and rose again. The evidence is unbelievably strong. And what's even more powerful than that is that the reason we have that evidence is because Jesus wants you to know it happened because that's a part of his way of pursuing you and letting you know, I really did this for you and I really want you in a relationship with me forever. And I want you to have life in me, eternal life in me forever. He, he gives us this evidence because he loves you and he's pursuing you. And my encouragement to you even this morning is for you to respond with faith. John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever what, believes in him, that's how you respond, I believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You could add on that, eternal life because of and with Jesus. Friends, respond. That's my encouragement to you. Nothing you can do that keeps him from pursuing you. That's how much he loves you. Respond with faith. Believe even this morning. The second thing that I think is so important that we take away from James's testimony is this. Um, it's that uh, James shows us who Jesus is and who we are as a result, namely his servants. And I think that that's a powerful thing for us to be uh, encouraged and, and even challenged by this morning. For those of you who have already placed your faith in Christ alone for forgiveness of your sins, he's, you recognize him, he's your Lord and Savior. Man, let us learn from James's example. See, because James understood that if Jesus truly died and rose again, then Jesus is God. And therefore, James recognized that he is his servant. So he would say, along with Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, I no longer live for myself, but I live for the one who died and rose for me. And that was James's attitude the rest of his life until he was killed for faith in Christ. He, he got it. Because this is who Jesus is, testified by his resurrection. This is who I am. I am his servant. And so that's, again, how, why he, he introduces himself the way he does in his letter. Not as Jesus' brother, though he was, but as Jesus' servant. The, if you read the letter that James wrote, you see that it's filled with incredibly awesome wisdom and advice, but it's, it's with a lot of challenge. And one of the main challenges in that book is that he's saying, okay, if we believe, if, if we have faith in Jesus, then let's make sure that our faith is actually put to work. It's actually lived out. And not because in, we have to do that in order to be saved from Jesus and we have to earn our salvation. Absolutely not. But it's in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us 
that we are then compelled to not just believe, but to believe and then live in light of what we believe, live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And James is saying, so let's not have dead in the sense of useless, not helpful in this life for the people around us, dead faith. Let's make sure that because of what we believe, we're going to put it into action so that Jesus gets glory, but also that the people around us get to know who he is and what he's like, that they would be moved to worship him as well. And James spent the rest of his life doing that. Friends, let me ask you, those of you who believe, are you living in light of what you believe? That Jesus is the Lord of all, then who are you? I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that. You're his son. You're, his, you're, you're in this sense his brother. You're, you're loved. You're accepted. All these things. But also, friends, we're his servants. Are you living in light of that? Is there any part of your life right now that you're holding back from him? That you're saying, okay, I'm not going to surrender that. You can be Lord of all except this area. (laughs) How you relate within your marriage, to your boss at work, sexually, with pornography, with your money. As a witness, with your kids, with alcohol, with drugs. I mean, you fill in the blank. You know, I just want to ask, what, is there an area in your life right now where you say, okay, I haven't surrendered that. May we learn from James's testimony and find, man, let me actually be a servant in every area. Now, what can move us to do that? I'll tell you, the thing that's going to move us to want to do that is what moved James to do that. When he got it on our heart level, That Jesus is God and that Jesus loves him. Well, all that I was just talking about. When that came home, when Jesus appears to James and sees, James sees all the things I've done to you. You're going to come after me and pursue me and love me and die for me that I can be with you, that you've loved me to this much when I definitely did not deserve it. When that came home to James, he was compelled for the rest of his life to live for his brother and friends. The same will happen to us when it comes home to your heart that that's how you've been loved even when and even though you and I never deserve that kind of love. But he's given it to us freely. He's loved us first. May his love compel us to love and serve him. So is there an area that you haven't surrendered? Reflect on the gospel. Reflect on Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you, and open your hands. That's my challenge in light of this. To help you do that, to help move that direction, we're going to end in communion. So the communion table is open in the front and then in the back. Anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, reconcile you with God, we want to invite you to come and take communion. If you haven't believed that yet, then we really want to encourage you to actually use this time to talk to God about whether this is true or not. God, did Jesus really die? Did he really rise? Do you really love me? Can you help me believe these would be great things? And perhaps even now you would say, no, I'm ready to believe. Use this time.
to tell God, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again, and I'm trusting him as my Savior and Lord. And then come and take communion. For the rest of us, may this be a time where we remember the depth by which Jesus has loved you. His body was broken for you. His blood was spilled for you. No matter what you had done, how you treated him, or how you will treat him, that's how much he's loved you. May it grip our hearts. May it compel us in faith and in service to our risen King and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the testimony of James. Thank you that we get a chance to just learn from his life, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us put this into practice. And I pray for anyone who's wrestling with whether they believe this or not, that you would bring them faith and confidence in the, tr- in the trustworthiness of your, your word and, and, and your spirit and Jesus. God, may they believe even right now. And for the rest of us, God, we pray that those that, we be- that believe that we would actually live in light of what we believe. That Jesus is our Lord and we're his servants, but we're not just servants out of sense of uh, obligation. But Lord, we're compelled with joy to serve him in light of how he has loved and served us. God, may we honor you with our praise now and how we live this week for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.